You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey everybody, CJ here. Welcome to episode 169 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And this episode is going to be primarily consisting of my presentation from the 2018 Free Coast Festival in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which I was lucky enough to be invited to to speak at. And what an awesome experience it was. It was a lot of fun. I want to say a huge thank you to Kyle in particular, who was one of the main organizers of this event, for inviting me and helping me to get there and all that good stuff. Really appreciate all that. And big thank yous to everybody who helped me out in any way, gave me a ride, bought me a drink, bought me a meal, all that kind of stuff. Um, a lot of great folks, and I don't want to start dropping names because I know then I'll leave a few out and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But thank you to everybody. And um, also to everybody that I chatted with, met, interacted with at the event. It was really cool to meet you, and I appreciate everyone's uh, friendliness and hospitality. So on to my presentation, Autodidacts in History. Oh, and real quick, one more thing. I did something for this presentation that I actually don't do very often, but I thought it would be useful for this particular topic and how I was presenting it. I did a PowerPoint slide presentation along with my speech, and it's something I don't do very often. A lot of times I think people use PowerPoint as a crutch, and it makes presentations more boring rather than more interesting, but for whatever reason, I felt like this one would benefit from a few visuals and being able to throw a few names and quotes up on the uh, projector. However, I didn't really think about the fact that I was also recording this to make it into a podcast episode. So are there, there are some things where I just put something up on the board and don't actually describe it or read off what it is or whatever. So what I'm actually going to do is you will hear me pop in studio me, uh, not live speaking me, pop in briefly in a few spots just to say, you know, what's up there on the slide since you, the audio only listening audience, will otherwise maybe not know. Also, we had Q&A at the end of the presentation and there was not a microphone for the members of the audience asking the questions, so their audio of them asking the question did not get picked up at all in my recording. So... What happened was I kind of repeated back the question more or less, at least as I understood it each time, which is something I usually kind of do anyway in that sort of a situation. So I cut out, you know, most of what otherwise would be like a minute or two of dead air if someone asked a question. I kind of cut most of that out. So you'll just hear like some brief quiet and then you'll hear me um, restating the question as I understand it and then my answer. So that's how I handled that part of things. So, here we go, here's my presentation.
So you can see the, the topic I'm talking about. And if you didn't know what the word autodidact meant, now you know. And the opening slide just has kind of like the dictionary entry for autodidact with the pronunciation. And it says, noun, a self-taught person. Real quick, some quotes to get us thinking in the autodidactic mindset. Meek young men grow up in libraries, believing it their duty to accept the views which Cicero, which Locke, which Bacon have given, forgetful that Cicero, Locke, and Bacon were only young men in libraries when they wrote those books. So, of course, Emerson, as everyone can see, I couldn't go to college, so I went to the library three days a week for 10 years. It's one of the greatest, you know, science fiction writers of all time. Ray Bradbury. Drop out of school before your mind rots from exposure to our mediocre educational system. Forget about the senior prom and go to the library and educate yourself if you've got any guts. And lastly, from Malcolm Knowles in his book on self-directed learning, I recognize that there are situations in which a person is indeed dependent in some respects and that in these situations it is appropriate for him or her to be taught or directed. But I don't think that it is healthy or even humane for a person to be kept permanently dependent upon a system or upon another person. So let's gallop through um, some examples from history of autodidacts. All right, so you may recognize this gentleman, Socrates. Arguably the greatest and or most important philosopher of all time. And he was born in fifth century BC Athens to what was basically a middle-class family in Athens of that time. Father was a stonemason, mother was a midwife, so solidly middle-class but not elite. And despite this humble origin, he became one of the most well-known philosophers of all time, and many people would say the greatest or the most important, even though he left no writings of his own. My question is, where did Socrates get his PhD in philosophy? We don't know a huge amount of detail about his life prior to his embarking upon his philosophical calling, we know that he did work at least for a while in his father's trade as a stonemason. We also know that, like all adult male citizens of Athens, he served in his city-state's military during wartime. And then, in fact, he distinguished himself during wartime, uh, exhibiting a lot of bravery and a lot of calmness under fire during uh, the Athenian disaster at Potidaea, where Socrates kind of led a fighting retreat and probably saved many men's lives. But... We don't know a whole lot of detail beyond that about his early life, but we know that somewhere along the way, perhaps in early middle age, he started to get into a habit of just sort of wandering around the streets of Athens, doing what he ended up calling examining people, which today we know is the Socratic method, where you basically ask people questions. There is a famous story, possibly apocryphal, about a friend of Socrates asking the oracle at Delphi, who is the wisest man in Athens? And the answer came back, Socrates. Now, Socrates himself was not, you know, he, he was unbelieving at this. He said, that can't be right, because I'm pretty sure I don't know anything. 
And so he went about um, really kind of concentrating his examining efforts for a while on men who had the greatest reputations for wisdom and learning in Athens. And he would just ask them questions and try and find uh, gaps and holes in their arguments. And pretty quickly, he realized these guys didn't know anything either. But they were even more ignorant than he was because one thing he was not ignorant of was his own ignorance. Now, as he went about his calling of examining all sorts of people, not just the elites, but even average kind of what we would consider working class people in Athens, he made some friends, he developed a following, he also developed various enemies, some of them influential, who saw him as kind of a heretic rocking the boat by causing people to question everything. And eventually some of these enemies, of course, as most of you probably know, succeeded in getting him tried and sentenced to death. And by the way, the crimes were corrupting the minds of the young and teaching against the gods of the state which I'm pretty sure if they ever make me drink the hemlock, that is what will be in the file. Despite the fact that he ended up being one of the earliest high-profile scapegoats of a democratic system gone bad, nonetheless, Socrates has an immortal legacy where, to this day, almost everybody at least kind of vaguely knows who he is. And this despite the fact that he had really no formal education beyond sort of like a basic grammar school equivalent education as a very young man at what was called the gymnasium in Athens. And this is how historian Paul Johnson sums up Socrates and his legacy. He says, in terms of his influence, Socrates was the most important of all philosophers. Happy among people, Socrates did not seek to turn them into pupils, let alone students. He was not a teacher, a don, an academic. There was nothing professorial about him. He spurned a classroom. The streets and marketplace of Athens were his habitat. The university with its masters and students, its lectures and tutorials, its degrees in libraries and publishing houses was nothing to do with him. He knew that as soon as philosophy separated itself from the life of the people, it began to lose its vitality and was heading in the wrong direction. An academic philosophy was not an activity to which he had anything of value to contribute or in which he wished to participate. For Socrates saw and practiced philosophy not as an academic, but as a human activity. So the answer to the question of where did Socrates get his PhD in philosophy is on the streets of Athens. And there are lots of autodidacts among the great philosophers, believe it or not, as well as among people from other walks of life as well. There's another one, Leonardo da Vinci, of course, the ultimate Renaissance man, guy who dabbled and became relatively expert in many fields in uh, Renaissance Italy. Well, he was self-taught in pretty much everything but art. And even when it came to art, he was self-taught to a degree. He apprenticed for a while under an existing master, but it wasn't long until Socrates started to innovate on his own and go out on his own in ways that the existing masters in Renaissance Italy, they couldn't figure out what he was doing. They couldn't figure out some of his innovative techniques in artwork. And then, of course, Leonardo was self-taught in many other fields he dabbled in as well, uh, including mathematics and music, um, science, inventing, all these sorts of things. So, yet another guy who is, to a large extent, self-taught. There's another one, 
Frank Lloyd Wright, American architect, and in many ways the real-life model for Howard Rourke in The Fountainhead. He attended and may or may not have graduated high school. We're not entirely sure. He attended university part-time for two semesters. That was the extent of his higher education during which time he learned the basics of the basics of architecture, and next thing you know, he was out on his own, apprenticing as a draftsman and learning the trade by doing. And before long, he was founding his own, his own firm entirely and going ahead with a very different and innovative style of architecture. In 1991, he was recognized as the greatest American architect of all time by the American Institute of Architects which I'm pretty sure, I tried to look this up, couldn't verify it one way or the other, but I'm pretty sure he never was a member of. There are a lot of autodidacts among great inventors of history. Here are a few. You probably recognize most, if not all, of those names. And there are many more. This is just, you know, a few examples. The slide listed the names James Watt, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Edison, Nikola Tesla, Henry Ford, and Buckminster Fuller. There's some autodidacts right there. Wilbur and Orville Wright did not even graduate high school. That we know for sure. They were entirely self-taught. These two brothers, just from a very early age, were interested in anything mechanical, taking stuff apart, putting it back together, rebuilding things. And as very young men, they actually built, from random junk and scrap metal, a working printing press. And they continued to improve it over time until eventually their homemade printing press was better than most of the existing uh, production models. They then, uh, as young men, got into bicycles, which was a craze sweeping the nation in the 1890s. They started off repairing and modifying bikes, and then before long were making their own, which were better than most of the existing models that were out there. Then eventually, as we know, they started to work on powered flight. They were inspired by the work of a German engineer named Otto Lilienthal, who actually, uh, ironically, died in a crash testing a glider. But then they took up where he left off and went far beyond him into the field of powered flight. They were up against a whole bunch of other men and groups working on the same project who had way more money, way more capital, in some cases had government backing, and that consisted of guys with all sorts of fancy degrees in engineering and physics and so forth. But these two high school dropout brothers who ran a bike business figured out how to make powered flight work before any of these other favorites did. This is how author Robert Greene describes this in his excellent book, Mastery. He writes, quote, at first glance, this would seem an absurd idea. The men in the field were all experts with incredible technical knowledge, some with impressive college degrees. They had an enormous head start over the Wright brothers. The favorite to win the race was Samuel Langley, the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, who had an enormous government grant to pursue his work. The brothers came from a modest background, and the only money they had was the slender profits from their bicycle shop. But what all these other men lacked in Wright's mind was some basic common sense when it came to any kind of machine. So there you go. High school dropouts in the bicycle business succeed where 
guys with engineering degrees failed. There are many autodidacts among writers. Here are some. Again, you probably recognize most, if not all, those names. The slide listed the names Mark Twain, Herman Melville, Jack London, Joseph Conrad, William Faulkner, Ernest Hemingway, Truman Capote, Harlan Ellison, Ray Bradbury, and Carl Hess. There's a writer that is uh, still alive and currently active. Some of you may have heard of him. He's a comic book writer or graphic novel if you want to be more pretentious. Alan Moore. There are a couple of his more famous works that have been turned into feature films. There are a lot of autodidacts to be found among musicians. Again, you probably recognize most, if not all, of those artists. The slide listed the following names. Django Reinhardt, Dizzy Gillespie, Keith Moon, David Bowie, Frank Zappa, Prince, Eddie Van Halen, Kurt Cobain, and Dave Grohl. Perhaps the most virtuoso in terms of modern popular music of an autodidactic musician in rock music is, of course, Jimi Hendrix, who basically taught himself to play guitar. Now, he did seek out experienced players to try to get tips and tricks from, and he did try to like watch the hands of existing players to figure out what they were doing. But basically, as far as we know, he never had something like a conventional guitar or music lesson. He never learned to read and write music. And yet he revolutionized the vocabulary of the electric guitar in a way that no one else really has. One of the few uh, other rock guitarists who comes close in terms of revolutionizing the vocabulary of rock guitar is Eddie Van Halen, also primarily self-taught on the guitar. And musicians who are self-taught seem to, in some ways, have some advantages over those who've been taught in the conventional sense because they learn how to play music in the same way that most people learn how to talk, which is intuitively by doing it, not by going through, you know, rote memorization and all this sort of technical stuff. And as a result, self-directed learners who become musicians often are more innovative and have a more kind of spontaneous and natural way of playing that is very different from the person who's technically proficient, but a little bit robotic and conventional in how they play. Here are some filmmakers who either never went to film school at all or went for a little while and did not graduate. The slide listed the names Steven Spielberg, Christopher Nolan, Stanley Kubrick, Peter Jackson, James Cameron, Kevin Smith, Harold Ramis, David Fincher, and George Romero. Not everybody on that list is to everybody's taste, but probably you like at least a few of those filmmakers on that slide. Now, you might get the impression that all autodidacts are good, and that being an autodidact is a sure path to being good both technically and morally, but not necessarily, because, for example, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, author of The Social Contract, was self-taught in philosophy and political science. Karl Marx, self-taught in economics. Corporate Abe Lincoln, self-taught in law and politics. So it's no guarantee that you're going to be a good person, morally speaking. Also keep in mind that there's lots of autodidacts who never become very good at whatever it is they're pursuing because you simply never hear about them. Because you don't hear about the person who tries to teach themselves how to play an instrument 
who ends up sucking at it. So my argument is that being self-taught is no guarantee of greatness or of goodness. But it also is no guarantee of mediocrity. So what we really mean by an autodidact is not somebody who is an isolated island-like individual who's reinventing everything from scratch. It also doesn't mean that they have no lessons or teachers or mentors whatsoever. What it really is is self-directed learning. So here's some more quotes from the book Self-Directed Learning by Malcolm Knowles that are relevant to what I'm talking about here. In its broadest meaning, self-directed learning describes a process in which individuals take the initiative with or without the help of others in diagnosing their learning needs, formulating learning goals, identifying human and material resources for learning, choosing and implementing appropriate learning strategies, and evaluating learning outcomes. Self-directed learning usually takes place in association with various kinds of helpers, such as teachers, tutors, mentors, resource people, and peers. However, if self-directed learners recognize that there are occasions on which they will need to be taught, they will enter into those taught learning situations in a searching, probing frame of mind and will exploit them as resources for learning without losing their self-directedness. So what really makes an autodidact, it's not a black and white thing between you're either taught by people in institutions or you're an autodidact. It's a spectrum. It's a continuum. A lot of people who, are list, who I listed as autodidact musicians did have a few lessons. But the point is that they mostly were in charge of their own education. They mostly were, whether they realized it or not, developing their own curricula and pursuing it and adjusting it as necessary. Well, I hope that uh, I've given you some food for thought, given you some inf uh, inspiration. I know a lot of you involved in this movement are sort of autodidactic by nature, but I hope that it kind of made you realize that you may be capable of even more self-teaching than you've ever realized. So if there's no questions. Oh, yep. Um, okay, so the question is, do you need to be self-directed and sort of inspired in pursuing your area of knowledge from an early age, that kind of thing? That is a very common thing in a lot of these autodidacts and that they often have one or more parents or other close family members who are very supportive of them doing what they want to do. In Frank Lloyd Wright's case, I believe it was his mother. Uh, and the same was also true of the Wright brothers, by the way. Their mother was much more um, mechanically oriented than their father. So, yeah, I think that's a common thing. And I think that you find in a lot of cases, not always, but in a lot of cases, that people who become really masters of a craft in which they are an autodidact typically start very young and seem to have some sort of early inspiration to some degree, combined with, again, some supportive kind of uh, older family members or mentors or that sort of thing. So yeah, I think that is a common pattern. Okay, so so sort of like how, this is your, is your question, that how I see autodidacticism in the work that I do? Mm -hmm. So the, the question is self-directed self learning the best term specifically uh, for for what's being described here. I mean, it's the, it's the best one that I've come across so far because what differentiates a self-directed learner from somebody who doesn't fall into that category is basically that at the end of the day, they're more in charge of their own learning in terms of 
uh, they decide what it is they want to learn. And while they might, at least for a time, defer to someone who's like an experienced uh, master in the field or whatever, they uh, the self-directed learner doesn't submit themselves entirely to mentors or to institutions in terms of the idea of tell me what to learn. So they go into it, and, and again, this idea of voluntarism, uh, I think, applies here, where they go into study of something, and they may go, all right, who are the existing authorities on this? Let me see what they know. But the self-directed learner never entirely submits themselves to that without any caveats. So the idea is they're still in charge of their own education, and very often in the histories of these individual autodidacts, you find that they at some point break with their mentors. And sometimes it's amicable and sometimes it's not. In the case of Frank Lloyd Wright, he actually basically got himself fired uh, because he started doing freelance work on the side in his own style. And when his, uh, his boss found out about it, he basically fired him. Um, and that's, that's a common sort of a thing as well, that you, you end up breaking with a mentor or a teacher. And so I, th I think it comes down to will. Um, the person who's really not at all a self-directed learner, they just completely submit to authority and to institutions. So they go to a school or they go to a teacher, and they don't, they just sort of say, well, tell me what I need to know in this field. And they never look at it critically. They never say, maybe there are gaps. You know, even though this, this teacher I've got is uh, a master of a particular craft, Maybe there's gaps in his view of things. Maybe there's places I can innovate, that sort of thing. That's what separates a self-directed learner is the person who is critically thinking, uh, even when they're being taught by someone who is an acknowledged uh, master in a particular field. And so, again, it's, it's a continuum. The idea is that you can still get some institutional learning. You can still learn from teachers and from masters. But at the end of the day, you're ultimately still in the driver's seat if you're an autodidact, deciding when and to what degree you get value from um, any authorities or institutions that you're learning from. Uh, and just, you know, to give an example to illustrate from my own case, you know, I've got a couple of history degrees, and certainly I learned a lot of stuff getting those degrees. I would never say that I didn't learn anything worthwhile while I was getting my master's and, and bachelor degrees in history, uh, and, and I did have some excellent teachers. I had some very mediocre ones as well. But if I only ever learned the history that they taught in the schools, I wouldn't know but a small fraction of what I know. You know, if anything makes me different from the kind of run-of-the-mill uh, typical history person, I think it's that I never stop looking beyond what I already know. I, I'm always looking for, for new things I didn't know, for new perspectives on things and so forth. And so, you know, in my case, I would say that I would consider myself, at least to some degree, an autodidact, even in history, where I do actually have formal, formal credentials. So I don't know if that answered your question perfectly or not, but that's sort of my thoughts on the topic. Anybody else? By the way, I'm completely blinded up here, so, yeah, I can't see. No? Oh, one more? Okay, so is it is it more important to be self-directed or to be, 
an autodidact. I can't think, I, I don't think you can entirely separate that. And the reason is because I don't think that anyone ever fully teaches themselves something. That's why I, I think that the kind of uh, literal definition of the word autodidact is a little bit misleading because it's self-teaching. You get the idea that there's this person like literally reinventing the wheel of whatever it is they're doing. And that's never the case. That's never the case. I mean, even in the case of someone as uh, unique and innovative as Jimi Hendrix, he did try to study and listen to and learn from existing uh, musicians that he liked. So even if you don't have a literal teacher in the sense of someone you're personally interacting with who's telling you stuff, um, if you're an autodidact, you still have teachers. They might not even know they're your teachers. You know, you might be reading books by somebody or watching YouTube instructional videos by somebody. They don't even know who you are but they're still your teacher. So I don't know if you can separate the overall idea of being a self-directed learner and being an autodidact. I think being an autodidact in reality ultimately comes down to self-direction. Um, it's just a matter of the degree to which you still remain in the driver's seat of, of your own education. Oh, sorry, I think we gotta pull the plug. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it and found value in it. And I'd like to give a special thanks to the following awesome individuals for helping me to keep doing what I'm doing. For signing up to support the show via Patreon, I'd like to thank Mark, Jennifer, Mackenzie, Derek, Skip, Kent, Andreas, John, and Ray. Thanks very much for stepping up to support the show. Amazon thank yous. I have a bunch of them. They go out to the following folks. To Doug for getting me the book Obedience and Civilization by Don Mixon, which I'm very interested to read. And the cool part was Doug was actually able to bring it to me and give it to me in person at the Free Coast Festival. So thank you very much, Doug, for the book. And also, it was really cool that you got to give it to me in person and uh, shake my hand and chat for a few minutes. So it's great meeting you. To Eamon. He got me the book Three New Deals by Wolfgang Schivelbusch, which I read a while ago and was very interesting and I'd like to have for future reference, so thank you for that. Also, he got me The Fleet at Flood Tide by James Hornfisher and Thomas Jefferson Revolutionary by Kevin Gutzman. So thank you, Eamon, for all of those. I greatly appreciate it. And one more to Bill. Bill got me Accessory to War, the recent book by Neil deGrasse Tyson, talking about the connections between scientists, I think in particular astrophysicists, and sort of the military-industrial complex throughout, I think, a bunch of centuries, basically the whole modern era, should be a very interesting book to read. My suspicion is that probably Neil deGrasse Tyson is mostly positive or at least neutral to positive on all these connections for the most part, I would guess, but I haven't read the book yet, so I could be wrong. And of course, as you all might guess, I would tend to be, by default, much more skeptical to this whole thing. But of course, even though I might share a different attitude towards it versus uh, Dr. Tyson, I'm sure I'll still find it uh, an interesting book where I'm sure that I will learn a lot. So very interested to read that. Thank you to all the folks who got me stuff off my Amazon list. If you like this show, please go to the website, DangerousHistoryPodcast.com, to find the show notes, including Amazon links for this and all other regular DHP episodes. You can also like and follow the show on Facebook and also follow the show on Twitter. 
And if you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or however else you prefer to get your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me out to keep this thing going and growing and constantly improving, such as simply spreading the word to other people you think might like the show and leaving ratings and reviews in places like iTunes. You can also help the show financially. Go to profcj.org donate. And you'll find a bunch of different ways to do this, including a link to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash profcj. And for a pledge of just $5 per month, you'll have access to special bonus episodes available nowhere else, early access to ad-free versions of all regular upcoming DHP episodes, and access to what I call vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. You'll also be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. Also on the donate page, you will find links to do one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, as well as donations via Bitcoin. Another great way you can help out the show is to do your Amazon shopping through any of the Amazon affiliate links and do your A-book shopping from any of my A-books affiliate links found anywhere on my website. I post Amazon affiliate links of items related to each episode in that episode's show notes. I also have generic Amazon and A-books affiliate links in the sidebar of the website. And if you go through any of those links to those sites and buy anything, even if it's not an item I specifically link to, I will get a small commission, and that helps me keep the show going. Also want to mention a continuing work in progress is my dangerous Amazon bibliography. If you go to profcj.org slash Amazon, that's profcj.org slash Amazon. There's also a link to it on the little post-it note on my website. And there you'll find a whole ton of Amazon links to books and movies organized by rough subject matter. And those are all things that have been a very big influence on me and on this show. You know, not all of them are books I've cited as of yet somewhere on the show, but they're all books that have informed my thinking, many of which I have cited from and many of which I will cite from in the future to some degree or another. And of course, those being Amazon affiliate links, if you buy anything from any of those links, even if it's not the item itself that was linked to, but you click through to Amazon from one of those links, then buy something else, I will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. And this will help keep the Dangerous History podcast rolling as well. Also, if you need some stock audiovisual materials, such as stock video to use in a film you're making or music to put in a podcast, that sort of thing, check out Pond5.com. They have a great collection of high-quality, royalty-free material available for purchase. And please go there through my affiliate link if you'd like to help out this show. I've used a lot of music from Pond5 in my podcast episodes, including, by the way, all the great music in my Not-So-Civil War series that I'm always getting compliments and questions on. So if you go through the Pond5 affiliate link, if you purchase anything, I will get a commission from anything you buy at no additional cost to you, as with the Amazon links as well. And of course... Be sure to patronize any other companies whose ads you may have heard on this episode, if you're at all interested in the products that they offer. That's another way you can help out this show. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.